So we see here a beautiful example of this party at the end where George Bailey is the main character and he goes through all these, these crazy circumstances and these ups and downs and these twists and turns of life. And we see here all of the community coming back and George has got this new realization of life this new lease on life, this new ability to see through a different set of eyes what life would have been like if things would have just been slightly different. And you know, it's, it's their praise and their appreciation and support that makes for a humbling reminder, a very sobering reminder for what one man can do in the lives of so many people what one man can do in the lives of so many people. So if you've not had an opportunity ever to see It's a Wonderful Life, um, I think it might be one of the greatest movies ever. Steve Roth might actually be crying right now. Check his eyes. Um, He said he cries every time. I might too. You know, every time the bell rings, an angel gets his wings and Zuzu's petals and all that. But man, what a reminder of what one man's life could do. And what a great culminating thought as we close out our return series. So we have spent all summer going through the Minor Prophets, these seemingly insignificant books in the very end of the Old Testament of of men of various backgrounds, at various points in time of, of history, saying a very similar thing, and they're all pointing to this culmination at the end that's going to be beautiful. This culmination of a man that's going to change and affect so much and so many lives. And so we'd be remiss if we don't look at at that and take this into consideration. And so we have to understand within all these minor prophets, they're, they're pointing to something. So what are they pointing to? Well, in Hosea, blessings will come when Jesus reigns. Joel, deliverance is only through Jesus. In the book of Amos, Amos was screaming out of the people. His kingdom is going to be characterized by fertility and prosperity and security. And there's Obadiah. Judgment for those not in Christ. And it won't be pretty. But then in Micah, restoration and forgiveness is coming based on the Abrahamic covenant, based on what has been promised thousands of years before. And then Habakkuk. Eternal deliverance is guaranteed. Zephaniah, there's going to be purity in worship. The Lord will be in our midst. Judgment of enemies will happen and restoration is coming. And then in Haggai, we talked about this last week, the line of David is going to be restored forever. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, how I said I was going to do it. It's going to happen. Then in Zechariah, everything down to the bells on the horses' harnesses will be holy. And finally, um, Malachi, the very end, there will be a mighty display of righteousness. A mighty display of righteousness. Everything down to the bells on the horses' harnesses will be holy. This is going to be an incredible party. It's going to make the party for George Bailey pale in comparison. The angels will be singing. People will be worshiping. There will be tribes and tongues represented of places that we have no comprehension of. And they will all be bowing down 
to the one who is holy, to the one who is majestic, to the one who did so much in so many people's lives to change where we are and who we are. We got to tell somebody about this. We can't hold this to ourselves. Just like these prophets couldn't hold it all to themselves, the message to the people, hey, return from your ways. You are in the O-Lod side of the cycle. We need you back in the yes, Lord, because it's better there, because this is what's ultimately coming. We've got to tell people about this. Well, the beautiful thing is, and I skipped it in here if you, if you notice, but there is a prophet that that was his sole purpose, was to go and tell about the goodness of God. To go and tell and proclaim to them a message of deliverance and repentance and and possibility. And so he was told to go to none other, Jonah was told to go to none other than Nineveh, the Assyrian people. Now, these Assyrian people were ruthless, they were obstinate, they were self-absorbed, and they were rebellious especially towards the children of Israel, especially towards the, the, the people that Jonah was coming from. Now, we're not talking about like middle child obstinance. Like who in here is a middle child and you know good and well you obstinate. I mean, you, you, you're there. And some of you might even be a middle child and you just project as if you are one. Now, we're not talking about that level of obstinance. We're talking about a ruthlessness that even to this day, it would make our stomach turn. I already explained to you, and I can, I can tell you some of the ruthless things that the Assyrians would do. They were famous for dismembering their victims. However, they would always leave one of the arms attached to their victims so they could shake their hand before they finally killed them. Ruthless, ruthless people. And God tells Jonah, go. Go and tell. You have learned the ways of me, now go and live the ways of me. So we've got it. Let's see how it plays out. Finally, we have a prophet that is going and telling a foreign people. So if you would, join with me as we stand for the reading of God's word. So we're going to be in the book of Jonah. And Jonah is in the back of the Old Testament. It's between Obadiah and Micah. Look it up in the table of contents if you need to, or you can flip to it on your phone. It's also going to be up on the screen But we are going to stand together reading the Word of God because we stand on the rock of the Word. This is not what Chris says. It's not what Zach says. This is what God says. So here we go. This is the Word of the Lord. Jonah chapter 4 verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about a plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to the point of death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight? Should I, being God, not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right, their right and their left hand? as well as many animals. And that's it. We end Jonah on a question. 
And we have to ask the question, what's wrong with Jonah? For this is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So what's wrong with Jonah? What is wrong with Jonah? There's something wrong with Jonah. And so we're going to work through actually the book of Jonah backwards because I want to make sure it's very clear that the book of Jonah is not about a fish. Okay? So let's say that together. All right? I'm going to say it, then you repeat it. It's not about a fish. Thank you. Okay, it's not about a fish. All right, so let's make that very clear. So we're going to take the, we're going to, we're going to try to take the emphasis off of the wrong syllable, as they like to say, or syllable. We're going to make sure that we focus on the correct emphasis here. So we're going to work through this backwards. So let's, let's look at it. And we're going to consistently ask the question, what's wrong with Jonah? So we see here the book ends seemingly unfinished with Jonah refusing to answer a question from God. What is wrong with Jonah? Well, just before that, we find Jonah on a hillside outside of the city of Nineveh. This great city, as it said in Scripture. He's pouty and he's self-absorbed. He's receiving shade from a plant that was miraculously sent to him from God just before experiencing extreme discomfort to the point that he's questioning God, justifying his anger. He's even to the point being suicidal He's waiting anxiously for the destruction of the people that he was told to go to. What's wrong with Jonah? Well, if we go just before that, after what amounted to Jonah's most minimalistic obedience, all right, he was told to go share repentance with the people, and he gives this whopping five-word sermon. Now, some of you are thinking in your head, five-word sermon, like, can Chris perfect that? Like, could that happen here? No, it's not going to happen here, so buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. So his minimalistic obedience here on full display, a five-word sermon. That five-word sermon actually caused one of the most incredible evangelistic episodes the world has ever seen. All right, where, remember who the Assyrians are. The king of Assyria repented. The people repented. Even the cows repented. Yes, yes, go look it up. The cows even repented. Then we find Jonah advocating his responsibility for his actions, greatly displeased, angry, and spiteful. Why is he spiteful? What's wrong with Jonah? Well, he says this. He says this to God. God, it's because you're a gracious and compassionate God. It's because you're slow to anger. It's because you're abounding in loving kindness. And, and also, God, you're one who relents concerning calamity. That's why I'm so mad. <laughs> What's wrong with Jonah? We're not even halfway through yet. Well, just before that is where we find this intestinal fluid-soaked Jonah coming out of the fish. He's on dry land after he spent three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, which if you really think about it, let's really think about it. Here Jonah had just been cast overboard, which we'll get to in a second, but he's now in the belly of this fish, which is actually a demonstration of God's mercy. He could have been bottom feeder fish food as he's sinking to the bottom, yelling and being frustrated with God. But no, God saves him from that, 
puts him in the belly of a fish, which spits him out on not in the middle of the ocean, but actually on dry land. And here Jonah is. He's still reluctant to go. He's thankful-ish. It's kind of weird how he's thankful. He's worshipful-ish while he's in the belly of the, of the fish. He's repentant, but not like fully repentant. What's wrong with Jonah? Well, okay, before that, what do we find Jonah? We find Jonah after acknowledging that he fears the Lord God of heaven to a group of sailors and and the God that made the sea and the dry land. Here he is flying overboard in the midst of a powerfully purposeful storm. A God-ordained storm, a storm that made sailors, professional sailors, scared to death. To the point that they were fearful and they were tearful, like crying out to their gods, like, oh God, this is something different, like save me. Which actually, Jonah's like, throw me overboard in an attempt, an obstinate attempt to cowardly and selfishly get his way and thwart the directive of God. He knew if he went overboard, he still didn't have to go to Nineveh. What's wrong with Jonah? And at the very beginning, we find a rebellious, obstinate, unwilling Jonah in a port in Joppa, wanting to pay the fare for a ship any ship that will take him to a place of more comfort than where he was headed. Any ship that will take him as far away from Nineveh, the great city, as possible. The city, Nineveh, that God told him to go and share the good news. What's wrong with Jonah? Dang, Jonah? Oh, Lord, Jonah? Like, let's be real. You know, it's not his circumstances. It's not the weather. It's not the people around him. It's not his commission to go and tell the people of Nineveh. It's, It's not even God. We have to be real here and come to the realization that it's condition of Jonah's heart. Jonah is rebellious. Jonah's obstinate. Jonah's ruthless. Jonah is self-absorbed. You know, so often we can use we can use scripture as like a mirror looking back at us. We can hold up the, the words of scripture and see ourselves in it, or we can use it as a window to see other things. And sadly, we 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 get those things backwards very often. You know, uh, we, we like to hold up the mirror of Scripture for the good parts. And we like to look through the window of Scripture for the bad. So unsurprisingly, because of our culture, we long to be the hero of every story. All right? We want to be Moses who leads. We want to be David who fights. We want to be Elijah who prophesies. We want to be Samson who saves or Solomon who is rich and wise. We want to be Paul who's faithful We want to be Peter who's zealous. That's what we want. That's what we long to be. We hold up that mirror of Scripture and like, that's what I want. But we've spent all summer long 
looking at Scripture, looking at these people who are obviously not the hero, much like Jonah we see here, they are constantly in that, oh, Lord, cycle of the sin cycle. And then we too, because of the condition of our hearts, we then have to come to the realization and the conclusion as we don't look just through the window of Scripture, but we look at the mirror of Scripture and realize, you know what? That might be a better characteristic of who we are. You know, we ask what's wrong with Jonah. But then when we really look at it, we have to ask what's wrong with ourselves. We kind of double back and we realize, hey, you know, I want to be Moses who leads, but you know what? I might just be Moses who strikes the rock out of anger. You know what? I want to be David who fights, but I might be David who rapes a woman and kills her husband. You know, I want to be Elijah who prophesies, but I might just be Elijah who's depressed and suicidal in the desert. I want to be Samson who saves, but I might be Samson who's selfish and disobedient. You know, sometimes we may be looking in the mirror or looking through a window to criticize others, especially in Scripture, but we might need to be using it as a mirror for ourselves. We might need to ask the question instead of, what's wrong with Jonah? We might need to be asking the question, what's wrong with me? Where am I going wrong? Why am I rebellious? Why am I obstinate? Why am I so ruthless at times? Why am I so self-absorbed? The thing is, is when we, when we don't utilize Scripture appropriately, is, which is something that we pray for, Zach and I and Tyler pray for constantly, for us as a body of Christ, is that we would rightly handle the Word of God. And that when it's supposed to be a window, we are looking through the window, and when it's supposed to be a mirror, as uncomfortable as it is sometimes, there is nobody in this room that's more uncomfortable looking in the mirror than me. All right? I am not a pretty man, okay? And like the whole, my grandmother used to have a mirror that like flipped and it was like two or three times like the magnifying power and it was just like, oh, Lord, like I thought I was ugly. Now I'm really ugly. I can see everything. So sometimes, you know, we got to look through that mirror. And man, it's hard. But when we don't do it appropriately, we don't handle the word of God appropriately, we miss one of the most beautiful things that happens throughout Scripture. And when we focus on Jonah, him as the obstinate, ruthless, disobedient, self-absorbed prophet, and don't hold that mirror up to ourselves, we miss the weave of God's character that goes throughout Scripture. We look at ourselves as the protagonist when we should be the antagonist. We miss the thread of beauty. So let's look at that in Jonah. Let's take out of our minds that this is about a fish. Let's take out of this that it is like, what's wrong with Jonah? What's wrong with Jonah? Point fingers at Jonah. And let's look at the beauty that we see in this that we so often miss. We see the beauty of of God's character in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Arise, go go to Nineveh the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up against me. Here we see a God that is demanding holiness from all people. 
He is a holy, awesome, amazing God, and he demands the same from everyone. But he gives them an opportunity. Go to them and tell them how great I am. In verse 4, we see the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea. So the the ship was about to break up. He did not break up the ship. However, he created this purposefully powerful storm that even the sailors acknowledged. Men who have been on the seas their entire life had to acknowledge this is not normal. We serve a purposely powerful God that demands holiness. And then he continues, verse 15, we see that once Jonah is picked up and thrown over, Into the sea, what happens? But the sea stops its raging. Here we also have a God that has this calming power that is beyond our comprehension. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of a fish three days and three nights. Man, sometimes we forget when we just focus on the fish in Jonah, we forget the character of God and we don't realize that this is a merciful provision for salvation. Jonah was not going to tread water and wait for the Coast Guard to come get him. God sent a fish and a merciful act to save him. And then, I said a little bit ago, you look in verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. How gross is that? But when we unpack that and realize that he had just had a merciful provision for salvation, now we realize this is a gracious provision for obedience. The fish should have just swallowed Jonah, chewed him up, and been done with it. Probably been a lot easier on God's plate, right? But no, here God says, commands the fish. The fish is being obedient, not even Jonah. Spits him up on dry land. Could have spit him up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for all we know. But here is a provision for obedience. Jonah, let's try this again, because then we see this this repetitive patience that God has, this slow to anger that God has in in verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, arise and go to Nineveh. We just heard that, didn't we, in chapter 1? Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. All right, Jonah, here's a reset, man. I'm a God that is slow to anger. I'm patient with you. And then verse 10, these ruthless people. Chapter 3, verse 10. In the midst of these, this ruthlessness of the Assyrians, when God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had, been, he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Praise God that we receive mercy upon repentance, that we have a God that is merciful. And then verse 4, we see slow to, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, then God said, do you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? Why are you mad, bro? Like, why are you mad? What's wrong? He's slow to anger. Then in verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah, and he had shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. God constantly is giving us unwarranted provision and deliverance. And then he 
In verse 7, he sends a worm to kill the plant. God is sovereign over nature. He commands it and it happens. And then in verse 11, as he closes it out, he says an incredible statement, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Even though you think I should, I'm God. I will demonstrate compassion. I will demonstrate mercy. You know, Dane Ortland has this great, great quote. It says, Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in our life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge. Or, I'm going to add to it, or the rebellious, obstinate, ruthless, and self-absorbed heart that, that drives it from within you. But it's the dark or absent at times thoughts of God's heart that cause you, like Jonah, to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. When we begin to see God's character for what it is, a God, yes, yes, a God that's all-powerful, a God that's all-knowing, a God that's eternal, a God that's holy, a God that's righteous, he measures the galaxies with the span of his hand. That's how incredible he is. He controls nature with but a command. He'll be the great judge at the judgment seat at the end. The crazy thing, that's not what he claims of himself. That's just what he is. It's just who he is. His most natural work. God's most comfortable work is mercy and grace and patience and loving kindness and truth. We see that thread constantly ring, ring out from Exodus 34, 6. Once we have a clear picture of God's character, we then have to measure our hearts against the standard of God's heart. You know, when we measure our hearts against God's heart, the whole excuse of, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I do good things. I, you know, I, I've, I've never done anything quite that bad. That excuse becomes null and void really quickly. And when that excuse becomes null and void, and we realize that we're standing in the midst of a God, yes, who is merciful, but also a God who is, who is willing to judge if he needs to. And a God that, that, while slow to anger, is also okay with giving yourself over to what you really want. We, have, we realize, dang, I, there's got to be something more out there. I, I am Jonah. I need something more. There's got to be something more. I can't redeem this. What's going to fix this problem? You know, we see the truths of God's character weave throughout the story of Jonah. And it, it diffuses the heart of Jonah. You know, when we realize how obstinate Jonah is, but then we compare it against how good God is, it's like, man, this is, this is pretty cool. But we think, man, that's so far off. Like, that's Jonah. Like, that's thousands of years ago. Like, why, why is this crazy guy even talking about this? 
But the beautiful thing is as we, we, we continue to move through Scripture, as we continue to see what these minor prophets were, were pointing to, when we're seeing what the return really is, we come to the realize, realization that the essence of God's character is, as Dan Ortland says, shown to us in, of all things, a Galilean carpenter who testified that this was his heart throughout his life. And then he proved it when he went to a Roman cross where he paid the price for our rebellion and obstinance and ruthlessness and self-absorption. We don't need to be thrown overboard to calm the storm that we created. Let me say that one more time. We don't need to be thrown overboard to calm the storm that we created. Jesus did that for us. He was hurled overboard. The perpetual cycle of sin that we have referenced constantly this summer is covered by but one name, and that name is Jesus. Our obstinance is diffused by God's character and covered by Jesus' willingness. Jesus is what completes it for us. There's this beautiful hymn that I grew up singing. Um, I, I, whenever I, I, I sing it or think about it, I think of my grandmother. I've talked about my grandmother before and how much she meant to me, and like pointing me to the beauty of the character of God. And, and this is the hymn because I think it points us in a direction that we need to be pointed to constantly as the body of Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, written in the early 1900s by Helen Lamell. And it says in the first verse, O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at a Savior and life more abundant and free. And it moves to the chorus, and it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I'd sing it for you, but y'all all go running. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it moves into the last verse, and listen to this very carefully. His words shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to the world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Go to the world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. So what do we do with all this? How do we sum all this up? Because we've got to ask that question. Okay, we, we want to make sure that we're applying the word appropriately. We're looking at it as a mirror when we need to, and we're looking at it as the window as we need to. So what do we do with all this? Well, and this sums up pretty much the entire summer. Number one, we've got to acknowledge our condition. What's wrong with Jonah? Or what's wrong with me? Where am I? Where is my heart? Where do I need to look in the mirror? Where am I being obstinate and ruthless, disobedient, angry, self-absorbed? I've got to acknowledge 
my condition. Well, to do that, though, because our culture tells us, man, you're good, you do you, you be you, just, just let it ride, man, just express yourself however it is. And, you know, we, we, we can acknowledge our condition, and then we have this, like, faulty thing. So number two comes in, because this is the litmus test. This is the plumb line. This is the standard. When you're building, you always build off of a straight-cut line or a level surface. If you build off an unlevel surface, everything after it's going to be messed up. And so the plumb line is we have to see God for who he is. And I will tell you, in the evangelical world, we have done a horrible job of truly proclaiming to the people of Christ what God's most natural work is. We have spent so much time proclaiming his power and his, his dignity and his just incredible nature, which is important. That is part of who God is. But we have to realize that his most natural work, the thing that he loves to do more than anything, that brings him the most joy as our good father, is found in Exodus 34, 6. He is a merciful God. Yahweh, Yahweh, the great I am, is. And you're just expecting for him to say powerful and majestic and holy. And he says, compassionate, merciful, gracious, slow to anger. We think of God like Zeus just ready to strike us down for anything we do wrong. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm slow to anger. I invite you in. I'm abounding in loving kindness. And I am truth. You can build everything off of me. And then when we realize and we see God for who he is, it moves us into our third step, which is turn your eyes upon Jesus. We follow the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Believe in Him and it will all be well. We can rest in that. We can look full in His wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. They'll begin to fall away in the light of His glory and His grace. And as we realize how amazing Jesus is, then what do we have to do? It's just like the song says. It says, Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Go and tell. Go make disciples. Go. Stop holding it to yourself. You have to go. Jonah was told to go. And guess what? He still went, even though he didn't want to. Why? Because God who he is. But I'm telling you, it's, it's a lot more fun to go the first time. As Tyler has said many times, and he said in his Habakkuk sermon, there is freedom and obedience. Go and tell. The party at the end is going to be incredible. We must come to terms as followers of Jesus Christ that there is a perpetual cycle from the yes, Lord, to the oh, Lord, yes, Lord, oh, Lord. We're just constantly in this. However, we 
as followers of Jesus get to rest in the fact that God's character provided Jesus Christ to ultimately satisfy the cost for us. In the storm that we created because of our obstinance, Jesus is the one that was thrown overboard. Jesus was the one that was swallowed in the whale. And he is the one now proclaiming to our hearts, change, turn, there's something better out there. Uh, Mark Cahill wrote a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. It's a great book. The premise of the book is at the eternal party and celebration at the end, there's one thing you can't do. You cannot any longer share the good news. It's final. The judgment has come, and it is what it is. The party's great, but you can't share the good news anymore. He makes this statement that we, I think we have to be reminded of constantly. He says, I can guarantee you that you'll be dead a whole lot longer than you'll be alive. So make sure you have the right answer. We come to terms with our very limited time here in comparison to our eternity. When we come to terms with our heart of the time that we have here in comparison to the eternal God and his just immense heart of mercy and grace and whatnot, it's kind of humbling to think, man, I need to tell as much as I possibly can right now because Jesus is just that good. Make sure you have the right answer. Oh, Lord, in the midst of my obstinate heart, let me constantly drive back to you. Let me constantly go back to who it is that paid the price for my sins. And Lord, let me go and tell. Let me tell my neighbors. Let me tell my friends. Let me tell my family. Let me tell my coworkers. My uncle, who I love dearly, passed away three years ago now. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he had the right answer. I pray for God's mercy constantly. But I don't know. So I leave you with a statement from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. An incredible quote for you to consider. As we have finally returned, we're here, we know who we're returning to. And Charles Spurgeon in his power, he says, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Steel City Church, it is our mission to learn and live the ways of Jesus. We are to go and tell. We return back not for our own good and for our own comfort, but we return to point the world to Jesus who paid the price for our sins, paid the price that we could not pay. We point the world to that. And so let us as followers of Jesus Christ be obedient right now as we move into a time of communion. 
This is what Jesus was pointing to. When he was hanging out with his disciples, when he was sitting in the upper room, he was like, boys, the party at the end is going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. You just thought they were going to celebrate George Bailey. No, you wait until you get there with me. It's going to be massive. And it's going to be forever. But there's a price that has to be paid first. Why? Because not of Jonah's obstinance or the children of Israel's obstinance and rebellion, but because of our individual hearts need to be repaired. And I am the one that can do that. I am the one that can take care of that for you. So with that being said, I want to give you a minute just to reflect and instead of asking the question within yourself, what's wrong with Jonah? <laughs> Let's for just a, a minute just ask within ourselves, what's wrong with me? In front of you, while you're doing that, you, there's a connect card in front of you. If you would like to fill it out, if there's a prayer request that's like really pressing down on your heart, or if there's something that we can be praying for you personally about, we would love to do that. We typically pray starting on Mondays and we'll pray throughout the week for the cards that come. And it's such a blessing for me and Zach to do that. So we're going to take, again, 60 seconds or so. And I want you to ask the question to yourself. Holy Spirit, penetrate my hard heart. What's wrong with me? Let's do that. Holy Spirit, I, I come before you just personally and ask the question, what's wrong with my heart? And Lord, I, I, I do that on behalf of the congregation. Lord, I pray that your, your power and your penetrating power will just pull back a callus that I have where I just can't truly see who I am. But Lord, with that, and I, I speak this confidently knowing that as you reveal to me my deficiency, what that really is saying also is just how incredible you are. So Lord, I pray that, that the other side of that is I'll also get a chance to see you more clearly for who you really are. And then also get a chance to see the beauty of the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us that we are about to celebrate. We're about to do in remembrance of Jesus. Lord, build our faith in this time as we lay those things before you that don't reflect you in our thoughts and our actions and our being. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So Jesus was, was with the disciples in the upper room. And he said, here we go. We've done this a lot of times. But this time it's a little bit different. This time it's a reminder. It's, it's going to be the first time of many that I'm going to point you back to this point in time. You're going to see here in just a couple hours... What's going to happen? You're going to see me nailed to a cross and shed blood 
and break my body for you. But here we're just going to do it in practice because this you can keep doing because that you won't ever have to do again. I am willingly going to be thrown overboard for the storm that you created, for the storm that you started. So he said to his disciples, here's this bread, this loaf of bread, and it's seemingly insignificant. Here's this nasty, tasteless wafer that is seemingly insignificant. But I want you to remember the beauty that there is in this because this is my body that will be broken for you. You're going to see it in just a little bit. This is my body that will be broken for you. Take it, eat it, and do this in remembrance of me. Then he held up a cup of, of wine and he said, again, seemingly insignificant. But this is pointing to something so much greater. And again, you're, you're going to need to take this now because I'm about to do something that, that will never have to be done again. It's going to be done once for all. I'm going to make a statement at the end that it is finished. There is no need to continue. You can rest in me. All that brokenness that you've experienced, I'm paying for it. I'm paying for the storm you created. So here's the wine. Represents that my blood will be poured out for you. Take it, drink it, and do it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, you are just mind-boggling. Lord, I, I pray that as we looked at Jonah today, that we will see in a mirror ourselves. Not ourselves as the conquering hero or the, the wise, rich king or the, the leader who led the children out of Israel. But Lord, let us see ourselves for who we really are because we are in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. And Lord, when that Savior, that time came for that Savior, you perfectly did what exactly was needed to pay the price for me so I could be at the party at the end. So Lord, we worship and glorify and honor you because you are worthy of that. Um, so Lord, I pray as we, we close out a time in corporate worship, Lord, I pray that our, our song would be pleasing to you, that our hearts would be open to you. Holy Spirit, we can't negate the fact that you are working in each and every heart in this room. Um, so, Lord, you do what only you can do. We love you. We are humbled before you. And we ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.